Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Voices and Visions. I am Jim Laskowski. Now, you may be confused. Perhaps you missed the Facebook post or tweet, but uh, I announced earlier this week that Pop Culture Club was changing its name, its logo, and some social media links are revised as well. So, yes, you can stay subscribed to the same RSS feed that Pop Culture Club has had. So don't worry. You don't have to do any changing necessarily. In fact, if you've looked at your pod catcher, um, you'll see that essentially the name has changed, but all the old episodes remain. Um, So I'm very excited about this. You know, it's funny because... I found out if I were to even change the RSS feed, I would lose subscribers and reviews and basically have to start from scratch, which, you know, in theory, I could certainly do. But honestly, Voices and Visions is just a revision of Pop Culture Club. Um, The same spirit of that interview show is going to be encapsulated, I hope. But, um, I mean, for all you techies out there, you may notice that Pop Culture Club is still technically in the RSS feed, Despite this name change, but don't be confused, as of mid-December, Voices and Visions is my new home away from home. And I'd like to thank Gabe Powers for his incredible graphic design and logo work, Ren Brown, Patrick Rapold, Bill Ackerman for their input um, about the name change, which I struggled with, but I'm very happy with. Um, There is a website out there called VoicesAndVisions.com that seems to be like a multimedia conglomerate (laughs) where they just do like video editing and things like that. But VoicesVisions.net is the URL. So all you have to do is take out the and since (laughs) VoicesAndVisions.com was taken, like I said. So the website you want to subscribe to is VoicesVisions.net. So VoicesVisions, all one word there. In addition, and this will all be linked in the show notes, my Twitter and Instagram usernames have changed to Now Playing Jim, named after the Now Playing Network, of course, and you can hear my music and future podcast episodes over at soundcloud.com slash voices and visions. Now, I know it's a lot to remember, but like I said, it's all going to be linked in the show notes as well um, at voicesvisions.net directorsclubpodcast.com as well. The older episodes are still available at this new site. They're just linked over to the Pop Culture Club um, former website. But, uh, yeah. Okay, so, you know, eventually I'll be individually archiving all the old episodes on voicesvisions.net. Okay, with all that out of the way, I know you're probably wondering, why the heck did I include this episode in the feed for Directors Club? Well, um, I wanted to give you a heads up because you're going to get a sample here of the kind of show uh, I'll be producing and working on and perfecting over the next year, hopefully, Um, as well as to let you know that I'm going to be putting together a Now Playing Network sampler episode of sorts featuring a couple of excerpts from other shows, but mainly I wanted to focus on some greatest hits from me, Patrick, and Bill from some of our interviews we've done with uh, movie experts, I guess you could say. Um, So supporting characters, um, maybe even tracks of the damned. 
still have to put it all together and it's kind of going to be a Christmas present. You'll see. It's going to be, it'll be good. It'll be a bonus episode worth listening to. I, I, I'm fairly confident you'll enjoy that. The next official Directors Club will be recorded the second week of January featuring Bill Ackerman and Zach Batante as we count down our favorite films of 2016. Cannot wait for that four-hour epic, I'm sure. And uh, the, new, the new hosts of Directors Club, Al and Brad, will be sworn in the last week of January for the Danny Boyle episode. So that's when you're going to get um, your first uh, example of what the Directors Club is going to be like in the future. So now all that crazy business is out of the way. Let's get to the subject of this interview. You know, sometimes I combine two or three interviews into one episode. But for this special premiere of Voices and Visions, I wanted to present um, all by yourself another music legend, a hero, a down-to-earth, wonderful rock star and incredibly personable songwriter, Miss Kay Henley of the band Letters to Cleo. So if you're familiar with that band, they were huge in the 90s, at least in my mind, uh, in the scene that uh, I, I hung around with, or I guess you could say the um, the hip kids of Northwest Indiana were really into this style of music. And uh, Kay is also the voice of Josie from Josie and the Pussycats. So that's obviously near and dear to my heart because I just think that's an underrated and rather consistently funny um, social satire of sorts about the music industry. And Kay has contributed many great covers with her band on soundtracks over the years. And she's recently reunited with Letters to Cleo for a terrific new EP called Back to Nebraska, which I will link in the show notes for you to purchase. It's so damn good. It's so good to get new Letters to Cleo music, of course. This is a special conversation because um, I'm a musician and a teenager from the 90s alt-rock scene. And uh, this indie rock... Indie rock? Let's try that again. This indie pop rock band meant a lot to me, particularly the record Wholesale Meats and Fish. Um, So without further ado, to conclude this introduction... This is a great interview with Kay, um, and I also want to thank you for bearing with me as I transition over from Pop Culture Club to Voices and Visions. And eventually, um, I'll be stepping down as full-time host of Directors Club, but you can keep up to date with me through social media, and I encourage you to do so. Listen to this show, subscribe if you haven't already, and you can find more information about this and all the other great shows on the network over at nowplayingnetwork.net. Shows like Vinyl Emergency, Fresh Perspective, Supporting Characters, Movie Madness, Tracks of the Dam and Directors Club, uh, they're all releasing kind of sporadically content over the holiday season, which is to be expected, but stay tuned, because January there's going to be a lot to look forward to, uh, starting with that, of course, Best of 2016 episode. And now, here's my conversation with the one and only Kay Hanley of a truly great rock band known as Letters to Cleo.
I am truly honored and downright giddy at the fact that I'm about to speak with and learn more about one of my all-time favorite singer-songwriters in pop rock history. I vividly remember walking into a record store as a teenager to buy an album called Wholesale Meats and Fish by a band called Letters to Cleo. Simply based on the strength of the single I heard for a song called Awake that I probably first caught on MTV's 120 Minutes. I was huge into that sound at the time, having discovered bands like The Posies and Matthew Sweet and Fountains of Wayne and so many bands that just embraced like kind of a hard rock edge mixed with indie pop sensibilities. And then I recently had the immense pleasure of meeting my guest at a special VIP show at the Virgin Hotel in Chicago, where she performed with her aforementioned band that has reunited and released a new, wonderful EP. I welcome to the show a pop rock goddess, the one and only Kay Hanley. Hey, wow, this is, I, I have no idea how I'm ever going to live, live up to that introduction. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I certainly hold in high regard that whole era of music simply because I heard it at an impressionable time. I heard it, you know, when I was a teenager in high school dealing with teen angst. And, you know, I've had the pleasure of talking with Adam Schlesinger and Matthew Sweet and sort of mentioned the same thing, that the the records I heard around that time is the reason why I picked up a guitar and started writing my own songs. That's, I can't thank that's you enough. amazing. It's ex- it's it's ex- it's extraordinary to hear stuff like that because I really, at that time, imagined that we were that we were the only people who were affected at all by this music that we were writing. I really didn't, even though I had evidence at the time that <laughs> people were hearing it. I just I had such I really didn't think anyone was actually hearing it. So the fact that you're telling me now that it affected you so deeply, I totally believe you, and it makes me feel really happy to hear it. I, <laughs> I well, I also think of the fact that you know so I've heard this before uh, many times. Actually, is that you know the Velvet Underground didn't know what they were doing exactly or what kind of music. Uh, they were making at the time. They just sort of went on instinct and just made music that they felt uh, very passionately about. And it really wasn't until many years later that you start hearing like from so many other bands and musicians and songwriters that, oh my God, Velvet Underground, huge influence. You know, so it's sometimes yeah. it takes time too for that to take hold. But, yeah. You know, are, are you comparing us to the Velvet Underground, Jim? <laughs> well, I, I've made a list because I'm a music nerd of top 20 bands, and, um, well, Letters to Cleo is in that as well as the Velvet Underground, so, you know, I've <laughs> got versatile taste, but <laughs> why don't we talk very briefly here because I always like to give the listeners who may not be familiar with the greatness that is Letters to Cleo a general background of how the band started out. Okay. So what was the beginning like for you? Was there a lightning bolt moment in your life that made you want to become a musician, or was it something that sort of progressed gradually? 
there were a couple. Um, when I was 17, you know, I grew up in Dorchester, which is a section of Boston. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, be, being a rock star or, you know, in the entertainment business in any form was not something that you dreamed about doing. And if you did, you definitely didn't tell anybody because it was a ridiculous thing to want to do. <laughs> Um, so that was me. And um, when my sister came home when I was 17, my, my little sister Patricia, and she was into like all kinds of cool music. I was not. I was into like disco. And actually, I was into cool music. I was yeah. into rap. Like early rap was kind of my punk rock. Sure. And, you know, I was a cheerleader. And, you know, I was really just kind of like a straight kind of prom girl kind of person and uh, my sister came home with Meet is Murder by the Smiths and I heard How Soon Is Now for the first time and I was like what the act what the fuck is this And it's like I was so moved to my core by that song that I just listened to it over and over again. And within a couple of months, I was in my first band. I like started dressing in black. And maybe not a couple of months, but within a year, I was in a band with wow. my cousin Greg, with the band that became Letters to Cleo a few years later. If there was a lightning bolt, that was it. And isn't it usually through like a really close friend or a family member? Like I think of the that moment in Almost Famous, where you know the sister comes home and brings uh, like a crate full of records that the brother discovers. Yeah. It's always yeah. interesting how that happens because I mean it's a cliche. Yeah, that's but... our job is <laughs> that's our job as human beings is to turn people onto cool shit. You know, like especially as big brothers, big sisters, older cousins, moms, dads, the teachers of the younger people. No matter who it is, it's our job to turn them onto cool music and movies and books, and that's our primary purpose in this life. That's a great point because I. Think. I... I think of my dad and him probably at an early age playing me um, Bungalow Bill by the Beatles. And because I was a kid, oh my God. <laughs> you know, because I was a kid, I was like, this almost has like a, like, like a sing along, like you can see um, this, this song being on a kid's show or something. Oh, Exactly. The sing-along feel to it. It got stuck into my head. <laughs> um, and so from that point on, I was like, Dad, I want to hear more songs by this band. This is really fun. And so that's how I got into the Beatles. And then maybe... And then he played years- you the, A Day in the Life, and you were like, what? No! <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> my brain implodes. Like, what is this? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> 
Yeah, it's, it's just like because I think of that orchestra swell, and that's just it almost sounds like a an implosion. So, uh, and yeah, and, and then he's like, you know, a couple years later, let's let's throw in some Frank Zappa and Harry Nilsson, <laughs> you know? Right. So, so wow. Yeah, that I mean, a good dad. Yeah, no, he was the best. He was the best. Unfortunately, lost him too soon, but thank the Lord for his. Um, just a willingness to expose me to a lot of great art at a young age. Um, yeah, really. I'm sorry that you lost him. I'm glad that he taught you such good things. Yes, thank you so much. Um, yeah, so if we jump to, to the present real quick here, I just, what do we owe the honor of New Letters to Cleo music? Because nowadays a lot of bands break up and reunite because they want to get out on the road again. Uh, but what was the impetus that sort of brought the band back together? Was it simply just sharing songs and ideas and then getting into the studio again? It always comes up whenever we see each other, which is frequently. Um, you know, Michael and I have children together. We work with Stacy. Uh, you know, we see each other socially. Uh, you know, we talk to, you know, we have kind of, we always have this running group text. <laughs> We've had like a, a letters to Cleo running group text with all four of us for years. Nice. And uh, so it comes up. And um, I don't know, earlier this year, Greg, uh, Michael and Stacy ran into each other at a show in L.A. And uh, and they were like, and Stacy was like, you know, I'm going to have some free time this year. I would love to record some stuff. You know, the usual conversation that always happens and... And uh, but for some reason, whatever it was, it was that seconds and inches thing. And Stacy was like, "Hey, Hanley, let's get together and write some music." And then the next thing you know, Greg was sending uh, you know emailing work tapes of shit that he was working on. And uh, Michael and and Stacy and I met at the studio and just kind of poured through the work tapes and picked one that we liked that we thought we could write run with and. Uh, and once we started writing, and then, you know, we were kind of like, oh, this is great, you know, it's like riding a bike. So we recorded them. And once we recorded them, started recording, it was, we were doomed. It was all <laughs> over. We, we, Creamer was like, all right, dates in the fall. Creamer's been our manager for 25 years or whatever. So. Yeah, great guy. Yeah, it was just kind of like, <laughs> he's a great guy. And, uh, yeah, I don't know, we just, it, it just, it, we just followed the thread, so which is very, very uh, typical for us. We're we're kind of like just go where the open door is and walk through it. When my heart was broken, my skin was paper thin, but I got my shit together. I'm never gonna cry again. Now that my soul is undefended, I'm a But I know that you've been um, recording your own solo records, too, sporadically through the years. And um, I was very, very happy with Weaponize. Uh, I was just like, Oh, thank yeah. you. Yeah, this is... Because um, I'm assuming, uh, you know, uh, Michael probably played some parts in that and all, but what, what distinguishes the solo work that you've done from 
uh, just the band dynamic with Letters to Cleo? You know, it's really just that unexplainable quality of chemistry, you know, mm-hmm. I, that that we have in Letters to Cleo, that we that we just have a shorthand together and it's very collaborative. So it's, it's, it's always everyone contributing to the song soup, you know, and, you know, adding their two cents. Whereas with solo stuff, especially with, um, especially with Cherry Marmalade, less so with Weaponized, more so with Cherry Marmalade, that was written during a very quiet, time in my life you know I, I wrote a lot of it with my first with my first child and uh, wrote a lot of it while Michael was out on the road and so it was very kind of solitary it really was in every respect a solo album um, and uh, and it, there's just like a sweetness to it and yeah. like a real vulnerability to it that is not that I don't experience in at least it may come through, but I, but there's just a vulnerability about it that I don't think I'd ever felt okay to express before. Um, and then with weaponized, that was just like, that was that. I I don't know. I think every album that I've ever been involved in from, uh, you know, whether it's a letters to Cleo record or Josie and the pussycats or a solo thing or, you know, I know exactly where I was and what I was going through when that stuff was written. So, um, so it's really kind of amazing as I look back and have this kind of living, breathing document of you know yeah. of my life. That that is a and, real and gift. the life of the people around me. Yeah, it really is. Because it, it's like looking through a photo album, and. All these it very much is. Yeah. All these memories start f- flooding in, some good, some bad, because, yeah, I sort, of, I sort of correlate just the experience of listening to music almost like mental time travel. Yeah. You know, it's like you get to just go back to a certain time when you wrote a song or you heard a song and what you were doing, because it, it creates such a strong impression in the brain. And that I'm grateful. I'm so grateful yes. that happens. But music is just, you know, I, I still know it's exa- in there. Yeah, it's, it's, it's cellular, <laughs> right? You know, and I you mentioned vulnerability because I'm I'm always really drawn to a band's entire body of work. So I'm I'm really fond of the B sides collection that Letters to Cleo put out. In particular, there's oh right. A, yeah, there's a song that seems like an outlier in terms of tempo, and the opening sort of riff reminds me of Neil Young. It's a song called Breathe. Yes, yes, yes. I love that song. <laughs> that, 
thank you. That is very Neil Youngy. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, so what that you, was Yeah, go ahead. That was um during the writing sessions for Go. Mm-hmm. We did that. And if I if memory serves, we did that over at Fort Apache, which is which was a a, a recording studio where we where my old my first band had done its first recordings, and uh, you know, and in Boston there's like a there's sort of like a Crips and Bloods kind of thing that went mm-hmm. on between Q Division bands and and. Uh, and Fort Apache bands, they were like in there, the twixt shall meet kind of. Oh wow! <laughs> kind of vibe going on. So um, I'm I'm kind of I'm mythologizing it in in a way, but a little bit of that thing at least for I don't know. Uh, anyway, so we record that has not, I don't even know why I got into that except for to say that we were a Q Division band, and when we were doing the writing set, you know the the sort of demos for Go, for some reason, we wound up over at Fort Apache for the first time in many, many, many years. And um, by that time, Stacy, I think, had left and was out with Brooke Salt. Hmm. I was definitely not in great shape. I mean, I was partying a lot. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and yeah, that that um, that song was just like. I remember us talking about wanting to like change our sound or whatever, or like explore new oral landscapes or whatever. Yeah. And uh, and that was one of the songs that we came up with. It didn't end up fitting with any of the stuff that we wrote for Go ultimately, but I I really like that song too. It's very different for us and really cool. And and I'm sure that Neil Young was. Uh, was an influence. Yeah, I, I, I just, I as much as I love it when a band is consistent, it's always fascinating to me just to hear the song that sort of stands out from the crowd like that. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I, I always think, well, where were they, and what was the, you know, what brought, what inspired that song, what emotion, and fairly recently for. Um, your, your Chicago show, you mentioned that I believe it's back to Nebraska. That's again touching upon some some vulnerability within you. Oh, oh, back to Nebraska, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I I sense that yeah. listening to it on the record too, but it just seems like again a very. I mean, I think all your songs are obviously very personal because they're coming from you, uh, but that song too sort of hints at something a little deeper. It would probably the only song from the of the new material that predated us talking about doing a letter squeal thing, and it was just like an idea that I had kind of buzzing around in my ether. I had just lost uh, 
my best friend to cancer, Aww. and I had spent um, a year in all, all of 2015 traveling back and forth to Nebraska, where she lived, to, to mm. spend the last year of her life with her. And um, and it was an incredible experience to uh, you know to to walk through the end of someone's life with them when you know that they're you you know that you're you're saying goodbye and you know we planned her her memorial service together and like and you know I interviewed her I wrote you know it was like right. it was really incredible but but the shock and the pain of losing her still was like didn't didn't make sense you know even though I was prepared for it so um I'm not being great at um writing literal songs I've never been a person who's a great uh you know I I'm not really and then I did this and then I did that and then we did this and you know I'm usually either making something up or I'm uh, disguising the real story with metaphor or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, Back to Nebraska is a very literal song about losing Michelle and uh, the process of that. And and so I was not having an easy time writing it. Um, not, I, I just like, I, I felt like I had the verse going and then the chorus is just kind of meandering. I didn't know what I was going to do with it. I didn't know how I was going to fix it. And and when we started writing the Cleo stuff, I was I took it to the guys. I was like, well, I've got this thing, and they were like, holy shit, that's amazing. And I was like, yeah, but it's not. I can't figure out the chorus. And so Michael came over, and um, my ex-husband he was like, well, what are you trying to say on the chorus? And I was like, well. This thing is, you know, I I told him this story about. I'm sorry if this is taking a long time to tell no, you. No, that's story. okay. I'll Take just, your time. I'll wrap it up. No, 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 <laughs> no, no rush. So what ha- So what happened was that um, the he. So I had been doing this thing where I had been calling Michelle's phone to like hear her outgoing message. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't telling anybody that I was doing this. I was just, and of course, her her husband hadn't hadn't cut the service. So, but the phone was was dead. You know, obviously the battery had run out, and so it would just always go straight to her voicemail. So every couple of weeks, I would just like call her phone and like listen to her outgoing message just to hear her voice. And so one day I did this, and the phone started ringing. And I was like, I was like, oh my god, okay, hang up on the phone. Holy shit, someone's gonna see that it's you and think you're crazy. And so, but I was just like, I was frozen. I was like, I didn't know what to do. So four rings in, and her husband picked up the phone, mm-hmm. and he was like, hey, Kay. And I was like, oh my god, Ed, you think I'm crazy? And he was like, no, I really don't. <laughs> he was like, the re- I can't cut off the service it's you know for the same reason that you called her phone and I was like oh my we ended up having a station and and so I'm telling Michael this story he's like well why don't you just write that and I was like oh I could just write that and he's like yeah so yeah half an hour later we had a whole new chorus worked out and the phone and the song was done so sometimes it's real that's why collaboration at least for me 
is like I really need to get new brains on the operation sure. to like cut through all the like my mind wants to complicate everything and just like take this meandering road to what I'm trying to say. And a lot of times that works for me. It serves me well as a songwriter, but sometimes it really doesn't. Sometimes I just need to say what I'm trying to say. And so it was really helpful for Michael to tell me, like, just give me the balls to say, like, that's amazing. Just say that. Oh, okay. So that's what that song is about. Wow. That, I mean, that sounds incredibly therapeutic to channel all of that. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, because I, I, I th- my dad, you know, he passed from kidney cancer within six months of diagnosis. Oh, wow. And mm. yeah, that was it, it. It's still surreal. So you know the drill. Oh yeah, it's 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 surreal and it's sad, but at the same time, it's kind of beautiful for us to actually be two men experiencing vulnerability and fear together. Um, yeah, it, it, it was fear. The fear. Oh my god. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was so. Right. It was strange just to even hear my dad admit to me that he was scared because he's you know he was in the navy, he's the all American dad, and you know he doesn't want right. to necessarily um, be emotionally uh, open with with his son. But then in those moments, we just shared that together, and I think that. That was really special. As much as I did not want to lose him, we got to share something. Um, but uh, so yeah, there so you have it. The band has always had a knack for releasing really great covers too, um, and I just can't get over the fact that you know some of my favorite bands. Again, you got your Fleetwood Mac, you got the Cars, of course, Cheap Trick, and Nick Lowe. <laughs> yeah. Good, good choices. <laughs> what do you think is the key to sort of choosing and then ultimately crafting? A good cover song because I do think you made each song your own, and there's a reason why they found their place on many soundtracks during the '90s. Right. Well, and we did we did not do these on our own and have them placed in soundtracks. We, um, except for well, the 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 biggies that you're talking you wanted the and. Uh, and Dane were all at the behest of the same person. Mm. Uh, this exec, this producer, this exec, this producer named Ralph Saul, who um, who was tapped to do many soundtracks in the '90s, and his specialty was getting his favorite bands to come to his studio and record covers for these soundtracks. And so, if you go, if you look at um. The Craft soundtrack, tons of covers. Um, yeah. Same for, I think, for the 10 Things I Hate About You. I think so, too. I, I don't know. But but anyway, it, we, we did these because of Ralph Saul. 
and uh, and and we but we were lucky in that we got to choose the ones that we wanted to to do, and so we actually did more. We did tons more, and I don't know where they went. And I should probably find them because one of the things that people want to talk about, um, as we're I'm doing interviews again for Letters to Cleo, is like people really responding to those covers. I'm just like, man, there's like, there is like uh, an attic somewhere with a box with boxes and boxes of tapes of us doing cover songs for these soundtracks and people only really know a couple <laughs> but there's oh, more that's exciting but i don't remember what they are and i don't remember and i don't know where they would be but i should probably try and find them <laughs> yeah put that on your to-do list because <laughs> i will i'll i'll keep you posted yeah please do because uh yeah i i love doing covers i think this this is one of the first things i talked to you about um, and in case you don't remember me, I'm the guy with the laser kitty shirt. Yes, I love your laser kitty shirt. <laughs> um, one of the first things I had to talk to you about was, the, well, first of all, the, my friends and listeners of the show know that I have this really crazy love for Josie and the Pussycats. And I don't think that I can take it no more. I do think a lot of the songs would not be out of place in the Letters to Cleo canon of great songs. So how'd you get involved with uh, oh, yeah. the Josie Project? Um, well, my uh, my friend Dave Gibbs, who was in the Gigolo Wants, which was, I'm not sure if you remember them, but they were, uh, you know, very much in that Matthew Sweet, Velvet Crush, that sounds familiar. Uh, Jellyfish, Posies kind of. Kind of, yeah. They they were they were kind of like Letters to Cleo's brother band in Boston. Huh. Okay. And so anyway, Dave, Dave Gibson from the Gigolo Wants moved from uh, Boston to LA at some point. He had gotten kind of involved in Josie and the Pussycats in the songwriting process early on. So he was writing with like Adam Schlesinger and Jane Weedlin and Anna Warrenker, and he was also working with the directors to. Uh, do songs for the movie. So th- there was actually no plan for a soundtrack at that time, like an actual al- putting out an album. There were just songs for the movie that the band would be performing. So he was involved in all of that, and Babyface was the producer of all of that stuff. So um, he was, he, they, Babyface had chosen a singer to be the voice of Josie, and Dave was like, oh, my gosh, you should really get my friend Kay to, to, to be the voice of the Pussycats. And he was like, oh, that sounds great. So next thing I know, uh, Michael and I and our 11-month-old baby were on a plane to L.A. doing, um, doing the background vocals for Josie. Now, in the meantime, what I didn't know was happening behind the scenes was that uh, the woman that um, that Babyface had hired to be Josie was like 
this incredible singer. I, her name escapes me now, and I'm sure she probably doesn't want to be named by name in this context anyway, but um, amazing singer. But there was no way when they were like looking at her voice coming out of Rachel Lee Cook's mouth, people were just like, that makes no sense. <laughs> so I was already out in L.A. doing, the, you know, supposedly the, the, the voices of the Pussycats. Um, and I would kind of was in a great position to swoop in and take the Josie job for myself. Um, which is what I did. <laughs> um, and of course there was more, it, it's a longer story than that. And there were like, there was some, there was some drama at one point where I almost lost the job and then all this stuff happened. But ultimately I got to keep the job and, and, uh, have a blast. I ended up, I, I didn't, I only wrote one song for that soundtrack, believe it or not. That was my first, or, and I co-wrote another one. Um, I, it was my first kind of gun for hire yeah. job ever. So I had never been hired for my voice before. I had never been paid for my voice before. It was crazy. And I think you can hear in my voice where I'm singing like it's a job. Like, I'm like, this is the best fucking job ever. (laughs) It sounds like me and it sounds like Cleo, but there's like an extra edge in there where it's like, I am like slathering on the extra attitude and like the, like this is not me. This is my character. Yeah. And of course, Michael on guitar and bass makes it sound Cleo-y as well. Sure. So, but I, I wasn't really involved in the writing, so I don't know. I mean, I, I was, I, I recorded the, once they decided to turn it into a soundtrack, Adam, um, Adam Schlesinger and I went into the studio with, with Denise, Mike Deneen from Q Division and we finished the record together. But again, like I didn't, he was producing, so he was kind of like telling me what to do and shit. I didn't, uh... But I didn't. But I mean, it was a collaboration in that sense. But sure. but um, but all the songs were done. I was I would have loved to be a fly on the wall to uh, see some of those people writing together. But I never did. Your vocal performance is so great with those songs. Seriously, I thank you. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, how how weird is it to, though to see your voice coming out of Rachel Lee Cook's mouth? Is that weird at all, or? It was definitely, it was, it was weird for sure, but it was so exciting and so different that like, and it, at that time I was just also getting the memo that like, there was a lot more that I could do in, in this career than be the lead singer in a band. So I was having all kinds of epiphanies that were like foreign to me. So, so that was just one of them. Maybe it is because when I listen to the entire uh, discography and I hear something like Breathe, I'm kind of like, oh, you know, it would be cool to, to hear some more change-ups once in a while. It, it would be great if... I mean, I don't know if you guys are planning to write a full record in the near future. I'm sure you will. I hope you do. <laughs> um, but it's not something There are no rush. plans. Yeah. 
There, there are literally zero, we have zero uh, dates on the books for any further Clio things. But, um, you know, be, be that as it may, you know, we're absolutely open to doing more stuff. I mean, you know, we all have other jobs and stuff. So of course. Um, it's hard to do Clio in any, you know, full-time way. Um, so I don't know. We'll, we'll see. But, but I do think that if we dove back into writing and recording, you know, in the next six months or so, I, I think we, all of us would definitely be open to, or really anytime. I think now that we've done this, I think we'd be really open to kind of like stretching out a little bit more. I don't know. Who knows? Yeah, who knows what the who knows? The, the That's the fun going. about music. Yeah. That's the fun thing about music is that there are no rules. Exactly. We can do whatever we want. We're grown people. And you don't want to you don't want to force it either, you know? Like obviously you guys are probably riding high from the success of the EP, which is great, and you went on tour, so I'm sure you're experiencing, you know, a lot of joy and it's going to be a very Merry Christmas for everybody in Letters to Cleo, I can imagine. <laughs> um, I hope so. I think it will be. Uh, but at the same time, you don't want to just get together in the studio just to do it. You want the inspiration to strike and sure, you don't want to force that. That's something that sort of happens spontaneously or when you least expect it. Absolutely. So what do you think, as my last question, what is this? What is the key to, I guess, longevity? I mean, how do you find the balance in your life to maintain stability? And I guess I mean that creatively or even emotionally. I mean, do you think the simplicity and routine of home life actually inspires art just as much as maybe some crazy experiences you might have had in your teens and 20s. So I guess I'm just curious right. to what you think um, is keeping the creativity alive within you. I always think that the greatest gift that I give my art is going out and living a full life and having lots of different experiences. But I also find a lot of comfort in having like stability, routine, you know, being a mom kind of like bakes that into your life a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I, I have a a different career in the, the music business where I, you know, I write a lot of music for animation. Uh, you know, I, I write, I have a couple show music over at Disney and DreamWorks and, and so I'm answering to, you know, I'm accountable to um, to people, you know, that <laughs> that uh, have a lot of power over my ability to continue working in this business. And so I, yeah. you know, I'm very aware that I have, you know, that I need to keep the client happy, and um, and and for some reason, 
working with that kind of accountability is, inspires a lot of creativity in me. I'm, I don't know why that is, but my creative brain works really well within this environment. And I would argue that I'm even more free to be creative in this sort of like very uh, buttoned up executive environment than I am even as, you know, the the singer and songwriter in Letters to Cleo. I'm really constrained by my ego in Letters to Cleo and mm -hmm. like what I want to say, what I should say, how should I say it, this reflects on me, whereas if I'm writing songs that, uh, that you know, Doc McStuffins is going to sing, I completely extricate K from that and now I'm speaking as you know, Doc McStuffins, how would she, what is she trying to get across? And uh, for me, uh, it, it offers me a lot of freedom. So I think for me as a, as a, as a creative person, as an artist, as a songwriter, as a mother who's providing for two children and, and keeping the lights on and getting ready to send one off to college, you know, I, I'm really inspired by, by, by keeping things keeping things interesting and fresh and new, uh, but also being accountable. And I think I learned that lesson in Letters to Cleo where I was accountable. I've never been a lone wolf in this game. Mm -hmm. I've always been a collaborator. I've always been, you know, this has always been like a group effort. And I can, I maintain that in in my new life as a composer and songwriter for you know television and film um i don't know if i answered the question at all you but. absolutely did and it it's something that i i think about because that is obviously the dream job for a musician to find a career that offers that kind of stability i mean you don't need a fancy mansion or a fancy car or anything like that. You don't need to be making trillions of dollars. You just need to have enough to, like you said, keep the lights on and support a family. And yet you're still yep. able to be creative at your job. And that's, 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 that's so fulfilling and rewarding every time you sit down to, to write a song, I imagine. And uh, I, I, I couldn't be more grateful for... All, all that you've done for for music, and like I said, hearing Awake at that age, and then buying the record, and loving everything about it, uh, and then I think I don't even know if you guys, if if you were, if, if the band was on 120 Minutes or Alternative Nation, but I do remember you telling the story of the inspiration behind Jennifer, and I think it was was it based on a true story. Yeah, someone, yeah, someone yelling outside the window, like right. some, like outside my window. Yeah, that. <laughs> Jennifer, <laughs> open up the fucking door. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, that's some I, junkie, some junkie screaming for his girlfriend at like four in the morning. Wow, see, you just never yeah. know. Like inspiration can literally be yelling outside your window. At three in the morning. Right, exactly. You never know where art's going to find you. Art yeah. is everywhere. 
Oh, I'm so glad that uh, you've played such a big part in that. Like, like I just told you at the top, you just never know when it's going to reach somebody at the right time and speak to them to where they decide to want to be expressive and they find their outlet in the way that I have. Because I don't know, I was, right. I was a depressed teenager, so I was looking for um, something that was going to connect with me on a, on a deeper level and it, and it turned out to be music. And that's probably a huge impetus for me starting the podcast is to thank people like you and Matthew and Adam for doing all that you've done. And I'm grateful that you all, too, can continue on through the years and, and contribute great, great art. So thank you again. Me too. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, I hope if, if you come back to Chicago and if you go on tour again... Believe me, I'll be there front and center wearing the Laser Kitty shirt. Awesome. I, I absolutely require that, Jim. Okay. You got it. Well, let's be in touch, and thanks so much for being on the show and talking with me today. It was a great pleasure. Thanks for having me, Jim. Make sure you get me a link. I sure will. Absolutely. Take care okay. now, okay? Okay, take care. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. You do what you want.